WATD presents The People's Truth, a show dedicated to bringing communities together and keeping the truth alive. Join us each week as we shine the light of justice on topics, people, and local businesses that highlight the real people's truth. Here is your host, Benny Rabbi. Yes, yes, Benny Rabbi here with you on the all-new People's Truth here on 95.9 FM WATD. Welcome, welcome, welcome. What are we, you might ask? What have you stumbled across upon your radio this evening? Well, truth be told, the world may never know. But what we do know is that we're here right now, and that's about as true as we can be. My name is Benny Rabbi. I am your host. Welcome to the People's Truth here on 95.9 FM WATD. Monday night, 9 o'clock, first episode. We're on the books. We're on the air. It's been a long time coming. We won't waste too much more time with a sappy, long, drawn-out intro. But just so you folks at home know, I'm happy to be here with you. I'm so happy you're listening. Even if you're just passing through, happy to have you. This show is about the truth and keeping it alive, folks, because it is becoming quickly a commodity in this world. What are we going to do, you might ask? Well, we're a talk show, so we're going to predominantly be talking. I do a lot of that. You might eventually get bored of it. We'll see. The day might come. In the meantime, I have a guest with me this evening. I would like to bring onto the show right now an old friend of mine, Norwell's own Mark Consiglio. Mark, welcome to The People's Truth, my friend. Thank you so much, Ben, for having me. Pleasure, pleasure. Now, a little background for folks at home. Yes, I do know Mark priorly from this radio show, and I brought him on here for very good reason, because tonight we're talking about the audio-visual industry. And now, what's that? Mark, what is the audiovisual industry? Tell our listeners at home. Sure. Well, there's there's a lot of uh, lots of different subsections of the audiovisual industry that I've come up from. Uh, I'm part of the live event audiovisual industry or the performance side, uh, and there's also an integration side of the audiovisual industry where people might do installs for your TVs or things like that in your home. Uh, where I come from is. Uh, the people that do concerts and conventions and uh, theater work and, and live events like that. Absolutely. And years ago, that is where I first met you. It's where we first crossed paths. It was actually at a hockey game. It was, yeah. It was the uh, the first skate for the nation, I think. You needed someone to do the PA and the and the music, and I had the gear. Yep. Not only was he there with the PA, the music, and the gear, he's a goalie, folks. He came stacked, locked, and loaded, <laughs> and he walked away with an MVP trophy that night, and it had nothing to do with all the extra stuff you brought with him. It was all laid out on the ice. I like to think it was because of my actions on the ice and not in the booth. It really was. There was a, <laughs> three or four of us that had to unanimously judge each other real quick and get an answer, and we did, and yeah, you we were had, the winner. The first one, we had a shootout, I think, and that's how you judged it was who got the best score in the shootout. That's right. And uh, a little bit of crowd reaction. Obviously, I think that was that was our first one. So not the most organized thing I think either one of us have ever been a part of, but <laughs> definitely one of the most fun, that's for sure. It definitely was. Absolutely. So uh, going back to the AV circuit now, uh, that's you, know, you and I eventually got into that together, and you showed me the ropes and uh, opened the door for... One heck of a career that, uh, for me, is still in progress, for you, still in progress, and I feel like we're both learning each day. So uh, why don't we go back to step one. How did you even decide one day, way back when, that AV was going to be your thing? I have always loved the, the theatrics of 
uh, going to the Bruins games and having the music playing and going to uh, shows in in theater and having all of the... I always liked the effects. I mean, I, I definitely liked what was happening on stage or what was happening, obviously, the Bruins games and, and things that were happening, but the pageantry and the, the, the pomp before and uh, getting the crowds pumped up, I think was what always stuck with me and I wanted to do that. And um, as I as I grew up on the South Shore and, and went to, uh, I went to South Shore Vocational Technical High School and in the electronics program when I was a senior, I had the ability to co-op at the then Fleet Center. Oh, wow. Uh, now TD Garden and... Um, and that's where I fell in love with it. I got to see how everything was done. I got to see how uh, how they how they get the videos on the jumbotron. I got to see how who plays the music. I got to just witness how that production came together as a seventeen year old. And uh, from there, that was it. I was I was bitten by the the live event entertainment bug. <laughs> it's a vicious bite. Once it gets you, it never lets go. It does. Yeah. It, it makes you think that it's always going to be okay because it always was. Yep. It always was up until about March of yeah. this year. Yeah, once once uh, coronavirus, COVID-19 happened, um, for the last 20 years of my life and, and all of the people that I've met along the way, I mean, I, one of the things that I like to do, and, you know, Benny, you know this because I, I've done it with you, but it, there's, there's people that I can see, uh, you know, a glimmer of hope in that they, they kind of like the industry, they kind of like doing the entertainment side of things or you in front of the microphone, behind the microphone, you've done it all. Um, and I, and I like to take those people and try to put them in places where they can succeed and maybe get to a place where like you are today here. Um, and there's so many people over the last 20 years that I've seen and that I've met and that, um, have devoted their life to this art that we call live events. And, um, in the matter of, you know, one weekend, uh, February, I mean, sorry, March, Friday the 13th. It um, started in February. That was when the first wave hit. That was when the first layer got cut off and we all went, huh, that was a big chunk. I think in February, we all really started to think this could be something big, but, you know, there was no precedent at the time. And we were, we were like, no one's going to, no one's going to cancel these events. These, these things aren't going to get canceled over a over a, a flu. Yeah, massive multi-million dollar events. And, you know, once you started to see the concerts cancel and the the theatrical shows cancel, Broadway cancel, I mean, all of that happened so quickly. That's where we, everyone in the industry started to say, this is scary. You know, what's, what what are we going to do? Not just for the art itself, but the people that have devoted their lives to this trade. Um, and that's a pretty good segue into our what we've come up with, which is our uh, the Live Events Coalition nationally, and here in Massachusetts, our our Massachusetts Live Events Coalition, which is an offshoot. Um, we put that together as a a way for people to try to cope, a way for people to get information that maybe don't know how to normally get that type of information. Um, I mean, there there are people that have been working in live events for their entire lives and have never had to file for unemployment. They've never had to uh, seek assistance. And that's really what our group was when it first started was let's let's help 
our brothers and sisters get that information that they need during this uh, this crazy unprecedented time that's never happened and that really shifted into a little bit more of messaging uh, about who we are, why we're here, why we're impacted by this virus and the fact that our our venues and our, our facilities are closed uh, and what that does to the 12 million people that are out of work Absolutely. in the live events industry. And, and that's, a, that's actually a great point. And just for context for the folks at home, because you and I, we're in the industry, we take it for granted, these terms and, and all these different... The word venue is so loose. Tell some of the tell the folks some of the places you have been responsible for the operation of events. Just some of the Boston locations, just for context. Um, just about every hotel in New England, I've done uh, you know events in in ballrooms, in exhibit floors, convention centers. Um, I've had the privilege of working on events in. Uh, all the major sports facilities, TD Garden, Fenway Park, um, the new training facilities. I mean, it, it, the list goes on. It's, it's. Uh, I wish I've, I wish I had the time when I was going through all of these events and learning. I, I'm a sponge, Benny, as you know me. I like to just keep learning things and keep doing things. It's true, he never stops, folks. <laughs> never stops. And while. While all these things were happening, I mean, we were always ramping up, always. It's always, every year was busier. And while we were preparing all these events year over year over year, we never really stopped to think what if something like this ever happened. And, uh, and I never really got to um, really enjoy the fact that I was working in some of these historic buildings that I grew up loving. And still do to this day. I don't. Yeah, I, don't no, I feel the same way. When I uh, was privileged enough to work at Fenway Park with you mm-hmm. uh, and Matt Sloan and all the other great directors that have been there under over my time there, especially. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's one thing to buy a ticket, go into Fenway, enjoy the game. Well, used to, I guess. That's in the past now for a while. But when you get to go behind the barricade, folks, when you get to peek around the corner, the facades that weren't renovated every time the park was for fan view, when you start to see the bricks and the things that haven't been touched since, what, 19 diggity two? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 19 aught. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I have to use aught diggity and other sound effects. I mean, that's a while ago, folks. That is a long, long while ago. It's just, it it really gives you a better understanding. I mean, Mark, the first time you stood in the Red Sox locker room and then got to walk down the tunnel under the field, how did that make you feel? I didn't get to enjoy it because I was trying to... uh, I, I forget exactly how many... I think it's five pitches or six pitches. So if we do something before a game where there's like a you know a national anthem or there's something special that you're doing uh the rule is you got to be off i think it's five pitches yeah um so uh, you know usually you're thrust into these positions and before you can even say hey i'm i'm sitting in the dugout or hey i'm on the field or whatever it's oh man i got to get the stuff off the field so that the game can happen and you know the people aren't here for me they're here for the red Sox. right right <laughs> um, it, it's a crazy feeling too i mean i i had that moment as well i was carrying a small projector an arm full of microphones which, whichever it was and I'm running through because that was the closest way to get to A to B. And they said we could that day because yep. the Red Sox weren't actually there. Yep. I remember looking to the right and I'm like, 
Look at this bathroom. Yeah. Look at, like, there's every beauty product you could ever imagine on this wall. Yeah. And, I'm like, folks, you could go down to your local retail whatever and go to the health and beauty section. This locker room has it beat by at least five barrels. Yep. I don't care what the <laughs> barrels are filled with. They're just filled with their barrels. They're there. There's a lot of them. It's crazy how that works. But all right, getting back to because we're, we're always running off the rails here, and we are coming up on our first break already. It's hard to believe. Wow. Um, so for context, we, we, we shared some of the venues that we were at and some of the crazy things. We're going to get into that when we come back from the break in a moment. But just before we do... What was one thing that stood out for you in the early process that may have been a good foreshadow you didn't even realize of just what this industry was really going to do for slash to you? Because as we both know, it's it, it's a wild industry to be in. It's it's definitely it's one of those jobs, Ben. That uh, people ask me what I do, and I I don't really have an answer, um, as you probably don't either. I mean, when you're when you're here in, in the radio studio and you're doing your job, you can say you do that, and people go, oh, "Okay, I listen to the radio." Um, we're typically people that you never see. You know, you don't know um, how many people go into building a concert or go into building a theatrical play, or how many people are involved in like Cirque du Soleil or something like that. And if you don't know that, if you don't see us, that means we're doing our job. So um, it's it's one of those things that you just don't. Um, it's it's hard to convey. We're all problem solvers. I think that's really the job title. You know, we could be engineers or project managers or whatever. But um, being in the industry has given me uh, almost a a family like. Uh, ambiance around the people. It's they're not just your coworkers, but a lot of them are family. A lot of people are from the road. Uh, a lot of people grew up in theaters. A lot of people are maybe ex-athletes or ex-musicians. Um, we know a few of those that have that have come through. You know, some of our uh, some of the paths that we've been on. You know, we've come across ex-musicians who are just sick of the touring life or whatever. Um, and you really you really start to build that that camaraderie or that family element that maybe you don't have in a normal job. And to see now during this pandemic, some of these people that are really falling on hard times, it's, it's difficult. And, um, you know, it makes you, these, you came up with these people and you, you paid your dues with these people. You learned your trade with these people. Um, and they're, they're always giving. Everybody's always giving someone a chance or giving someone information. Um, it's, it, it's why I love this industry. It's why I don't want to leave it. It's, you know, it's very diverse group. Um, and we've, we've noticed that in our coalition too, you know, it's, it's all shapes and sizes, um, in this type of industry. And, and some people that you might not think would fit actually fit perfectly. I know, it's crazy, isn't it? Yep. Well, tell you what, Mark, we are finally up on it. Our first break here on The People's Truth, so we're going to step aside and just give a shout-out to a couple of our sponsors. We'll be right back with more from Mark Consiglio and the Mass Live Event Coalition here on The People's Truth on 95.9 FM, WATD. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We're having so much fun here. Are you guys having fun? You boys having a good time? Yes. 
Wonderful. Mark, are you having a good time, buddy? I'm having a great time, <laughs> That's awesome. I'm happy to hear that, buddy. Thank you for joining us here. If you're just tuning in, you are here with us on the very first episode of The People's Truth with your host, Benny Rabbi, here on 95.9 FM WATD. We are uh, not taking calls tonight. Eventually, we will be taking some calls, though, and fielding questions. It all depends. We're going to have so many different fun segments as we come up and go through the weeks. It's just going to be nonstop fun on Monday nights. Bringing it back, baby. Nine o'clock on Monday nights, having fun and keeping the truth alive. I know, that's what it's all about. <laughs> all right, so we've got Mark Consiglio here in studio with us, Norwell's own, uh, and we're talking audio-visual industry. Now, uh, Mark, you also run a podcast, is that right? Great Gig Gear. I do, yeah. It's a, right now, it's a YouTube channel that uh, <clears throat> is... Uh, I have a, a passion for technology, um, and... Uh, one of my prior jobs in the audiovisual industry allowed me to play with a lot of toys, uh, sample a lot of product, and see what was what was good, what was bad. And I really loved that job. Um, it was uh, it was one of the best times of my life, one of the best career choices I made. And uh, when this debacle happened in March, um, one of the things that I wanted to do that could keep me from going insane but also let me keep the creative juices flowing was to start a channel that was along the same lines of what I was doing in the past as a product manager and uh, and maybe review some equipment, tell people what's good about it, what's bad about it, be a, an independent third party rather than have, you know, these marketing slicks from all these companies come up. And uh, it's been great. It, it's still in its infancy. We've done a couple of episodes to just to gauge interest and see where people are. Uh, right now we're in the... The phase where we're we're talking to a lot of the the vendors and a lot of the uh, manufacturers out there to see who has new products coming out and what would they like us to review. That's awesome. I mean, that's such a fun and unique thing to be able to do. To, hey, look at all this brand new to the market equipment. I get to play with it first, and then I'll just tell everybody about it. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, it's it's one of those it's one of those things that I like to look at products and and ultimately see is someone in the field going to like this you know is the is the audio engineer going to have a problem with this is he going to get lost is there something funky about this and not only educate the field on on you know how a product like that may need to be tricked when you're using it um, but also uh, maybe bring some data back to the manufacturers to be able to say maybe version two should have some sort of change in it, or maybe this is why. So it, it's nice to be a person that can represent the field, but also a person that can help represent the manufacturers and the vendors. That's awesome. Uh, one thing I did want to touch on in the AV industry that I feel is very, again, this is a subject that most people are probably shaking their heads going, what on earth exactly are they talking about? They're saying it. I heard the words that they're using to describe it. I just can't understand. So I just want to really make sure we drive this home for folks. When we say the AV industry, we're talking about the people that you most likely, if you have bought a ticket to a show or a theater or a movie or anything at all, if you have no idea what we're talking about, that means we've done our job mm -hmm. so good that you have no idea it's even happening. Absolutely. And, and that's really the big thing that as, as far as hurdles go, raising awareness for this, it's like, hey... We've been so good at hiding for all these years, and you have no idea who we are, but we're really hurting right now. We really need some help. 
but you know we've been here the whole time. You just don't know who we are. Right. So it's such an odd catch twenty two to be stuck in that, and, and that's why I wanted to bring this up. We wear all black, mm-hmm. and there's a reason for that, Mark. What explain to the folks at home? What is that reason? Yeah, most technicians wear what we call show blacks, and that's so that we are hidden behind the scenes, um, or. Uh, in the in the hotel industry and hospitality industry, usually it's suits, but they're usually pretty dark suits. In theater, it's all blacks, and that is to remain hidden and out of sight. Um, that, you know, the magic of a play or of uh, a show that you're at is lost if you see all the people that are controlling everything going on around you, uh, just like in a movie. If we could green screen ourselves out live, we would, but we can't. So we have to wear we have to wear black. And don't, don't tempt someone. They will find a way. Those AV nerds, I'm telling you, man. They'll figure it out. <laughs> they they will. will. They'll figure it out. So, um, so yeah, we, we, so the significance of the, the black shirts, the black clothes, boots, is uh, ultimately so that we stay hidden and outside of the light. And um, it's it's been difficult for us to introduce ourselves during this pandemic and, and to let people know that we are here and that we're hurting because we've done so good hiding for so long. Um, right. Back in July, we actually, we had a coming out party in the State House Steps where we introduced the people that make events, the hashtag we make events movement. And, um, and that was huge because people didn't know how many, how many people go into a production, how many people make your, the Blue Man group happen every night. No, you know, things like that. And it's a lot more than just the talent on stage. Trust me, it's folks. It's a lot more. I mean, that you can't, you definitely can't, knock the talent i mean they're people are there to see them but the people that put the show on every night there's there could be 100 to 200 people behind the scenes that you don't know about and those people love what they do that's why they do it it's not a job to them and it's not even like it's just a fun cute thing that we all like to pass the time with this is a life or death situation every single show every single night and i can't tell you how many horror stories i was warned about on certain sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, stories were shared. Things that seemed so innocent in the moment and unfortunately for that brother or sister, they met an untimely end. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I recall not that long ago, what was it, first night celebrations in Boston? Uh, there was a horrible accident and we lost one of our own that night. Yep. And that wasn't even a COVID. Like, that was a good old-fashioned. And that yep. was terrible, but it really brought that to light. Yep. And I, I'm, uh, his name escapes me right now. I apologize to the family, but we, you know, we do recognize him, and that's why I bring that up, because it's not a joke. If someone on that AV crew slips up on a detail, misses a rig point, God forbid, it could be really, really bad. It could be, and it's one of the industries that I think is so adamant about safety. There's so many safety alliances that go into what we do in certifications so that there aren't injuries or death like in a, in a situation like that. Uh, I mean, obviously sometimes freak accidents happen, but it's what's, it's what our struggle is right now where we can't essentially do our jobs because it's not safe right now. Uh, obviously it's not safe to have thousands of people in one place, um, whether that's a, a sporting event or a theater or a convention, you know, there, there's just so many people you can't control 
the spread of what's happening of of COVID. So unless you're in New Zealand for some reason, yeah, for whatever reason, they're still they're all green. They're, they're all good. So it's. It, it's difficult for us because obviously we want to work and we can't. Um, you know, the governor says that there's there's uh, limitations on who can be where and when and what times. And we understand that that's for safety. The, the coalition itself, itself understands more than most what that means to be safe. And while we want to work, while we want to be living our passions and doing our art, we know we can't because of uh, the safety of not just our entertainers or our attendees, but also ourselves. Ourselves, Absolutely. And uh, this is a situation on the other side of it where let's say you're a person who's, okay, my career is literally on hold right now. I guess I'll just sign on like everybody else, right? But wait, there's more. Yeah. As uh, as Mark and I both found out, yeah, no, there is uh, there is no signing on if you were a 1099 independent contractor and worked for these gigantic AV corporations like that. That was it. If they didn't pay you, they didn't pay you. And what's happening now is just it's a tragedy. We we've come to find, and this is this is the direction that the coalition's been going in. Is at first we were we were really built to help with messaging and to help people understand what was happening um, from the national level, from the National Live Events Coalition through our chapter. And that's one thing that I helped the national group do was build all these chapters. And our Boston chapter grew to be so big because people were looking for so much information about where what's next. And then that ultimately turned into what can we do? How can we act? And I really didn't see that coming, but... Um, essentially what has happened is nobody can work. Um, nobody can really do the, the gig work or the, you know, some guys, Ben, you're one of them. Um, you know, found a way somehow. I mean, found a way to make, to make a living in the industry doing multiple things. And those people, when this hit and when all of the, the unemployment insurance and um, PUA and all, all there's so many different all of it. programs. It, it, essentially what happened was the people like you and um, not necessarily me, I was working full time, but there are gig workers who are getting 1099 and W-2 and because they were split, they weren't getting any benefits from the state, from the government, from federal or state. Um, because they didn't qualify for either because they're of how they were collecting their money. Exactly. And they're those people, I know so many right now and it like it brings a tear to my eye to know just how how much in trouble they are. And right. and, and if I can help get their message out there, which is really what the last couple of months have been so that people understand uh, not necessarily people. I think people understand so that the government and so that our representatives and our officials understand our plight. Um, if I can just make one person understand in the in our government what's going on and why we need help, then I feel like I've done my job. And we've done a pretty good job over the last couple of months doing events and having demonstrations. Um, you know, we've had Congressman Lynch at uh, our our event in 
Boston at the beginning of October. We had a case push, which is where all of our workers, uh, all our brothers and sisters pushed cases in a parade route. And then when we when we got to the last place, which was the Wang Center, we had a big open mic, essentially, where people got to share their stories. And a lot of those stories are heartbreaking because it's like, I've devoted my entire life to this industry and I can't just change. Right. It's not like you can just go pick up a new... I mean, that's literally like taking an author, a lifetime author, wrote many books, masterpieces of, of literature. Hey, nobody likes books anymore, so now you have to do something that's not books. Yeah. But that's all I've done for 20, 30 years. It's all I know. But Yeah, you, sorry, nobody cares anymore. If you look, if you think of it like this, Ben, where you've got doctors... Let's just say you have to work so hard to become a doctor and to get to that point. Well, while we don't have the PhD, we have a lot of certifications and we have a lot of uh, experience levels that you, that you can go through in our industry. And we say AV, um, and it stands for audiovisual, but it's so much more. It's so much more broad. There's, it, it, it encompasses all live events. There's food and beverage folks. There's exhibits folks. There's carpenters, there's set designers, there's so many people. We, and we get to a point where it's all of these people just can't pivot. That's the word I, I was trying to think of what that word was. So imagine if doctors all have these PhDs, they have all this insurance, all this money put into their educations. And imagine if one day everyone said, okay, none of the doctors can go to work and we don't know for how long. And then nine months go by, and those doctors haven't been able to work. They've sunk all of their life, everything that they've done into being a doctor. You can't really pivot into too much. I mean, you could probably do a couple of other things, but now there's 12 million people looking at all of those couple of other things. So uh, pivoting isn't really the easiest thing for us. Not at all. Uh, and I mean, uh, you're right. I'm, I'm very blessed and happy to, uh, to be in the situation that I'm in right now here being at Broadcast House and being a part of this crew. Um, and we get the, we, you know, I, I see the people come in. I, I see the resumes. I, I hear the phone calls. And you're right. It's just there's so many people. And instinctively, you want to help them all. You want to help them all one by one and just make sure everybody's good. But you just... It's so hard to do that. And, you know, that's why we've been spreading the word on uh, 1510 AM, our sister station, WMEX. We say it all the time. WeMakeEvents.org. And that's how you can make the difference in the lives of live event industry folks across the Commonwealth. Over 175,000 citizens, Mark, as you know. And this is now week 35 mm -hmm. of no sanctioned events in Boston. Yep. That is... I mean, I never thought this day would happen. And this, uh, folks, th this isn't the tone for the whole show. I promise. We're having fun. <laughs> We're smiling. We're all having a great time here. It's not, a, it's not a downer. I promise. But this is a serious subject, and that's why we wanted to start with this. Because but for, your, for your message of the people's truth, you know, this is one of those things that is, it's out there. It's happening. There's 12 million of us nationally. Nationally, folks. 12 million. So that are unemployed, can't work, and... It's one of those things that's perfect for this type of show, Ben, because, you know, you're looking, you're doing the people's truth, and this is something that the people need to know about. This is how we keep the truth alive. You know, great segue to the slogan. I love it. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. You're First show, and I've already got the folks getting it on. I love it. 
This is great. Well, uh, definitely looking forward to that. We have a, a little bit more time here before our, uh, our, our last segment coming up here. Uh, I did want to talk about a little hockey with you because yeah. how could we not? Uh, and folks, just before we wrap up off that subject, again, if you would like to help make a difference in the life of all of these AV technicians and everybody across the board, please, wemakeeventsorg that's how you can go find more information. That's how you can help get results and get the attention of the decision makers who make those calls. We've already got a lot of broad support, which is great. And uh, we won't get too much into that because we're not a political show. But we have friends. They're in places. And we're very appreciative of them wherever they fall. We also have a list of all of our partners on MassLiveCo.org. Nice. And... Uh, there's, there's our mission statement. Everything is there. A lot of our pictures from our events, how you can get involved. Um, so we do. We have our own site, but also the We Make Events people, the Extend PUA group. Um, we all partner together. We work together on a lot of events. And, and just r- tell everybody one more time clearly, because I'm sure I segued that horribly. Where can people find more information and how can they get involved beyond WeMakeEvents.org? It, it, our local is Mass Live Co. M-A-S-S-L-I-V-E-C-O dot org. And all those links to We Make Events, um, the uh, We Are Events, the Extend PUA, all those partners are all on our website too. Awesome. Thank you so much for uh, sharing all that with us about the AV industry. And hopefully we've shed some light on folks and uh, maybe they've educated a bit and uh, learned a little bit about something they might not have even known they wanted to. I hope so. I sure hope so, too. So let's go ahead and just jump into our, uh, our, our last topic with you, Mark. We're going to talk some hockey because you, my friend, are a goaltender. Yeah. Now, traditionally, that means much like the rest of us tenders, there's something wrong with your head. What's wrong with yours? A little bit. Um, I don't know. All my friends, I grew up in, um, I grew up around a lot of hockey. All my cousins played hockey. A lot of my friends played hockey and uh, never had a goalie. None of them were goalies. So I just said, all right, I'll be the goalie. I'll be the goalie. And it stuck. Uh, I don't think it was any kind of brain damage that I was born with that made me want to be one. <laughs> I think I, I just said... I'll be it so that we can play the game and everyone will stop complaining. And then it just turned into, uh, man, like 30 years now of, you know, blowing up my knees and um, getting bruises all over my body. And uh, and I'm nowhere near, uh, you know, a a good hockey player at this point in my life. Um, But... It's being bashful, folks. No, it's... it's I mean, I am D-level beer leaguing right now. Um, But... uh, it's it's one of those things I've always had a passion for hockey. I've always loved it, and um, I love playing it. Even when I'm on a team that is, you know, they lose every game or whatever, I'm still having fun while I'm out there. I, sometimes I get mad and swear and um, push people around a little bit, but, I mean, that's the game. It's part of the game. Yeah. Um, like I said, we are coming up on it a little bit, but I want to hear a little bit about this from you. Tell me about one of your favorite youth hockey memories, maybe a, a favorite coach or uh, one of those moments for you in your youth development that said, oh, wow, I, I think I just figured something out here. Youth hockey was, uh, I, I went through the Pembroke system, uh, PYH. My father lived in Pembroke. I lived in Whitman growing up. Uh, and he, he wanted me to play hockey, so I went through that system. And they were they were awesome, and the the classes and the camps that they would do were amazing. And I think when it when it started to resonate with me that I really liked this and wanted to play um, past town league, 
uh, past youth hockey was probably uh, when they'd bring in a like a when I was growing up, Rob Tallis was the goalie for the Bruins. Ah, uh, Tally. Like after, so Bill Ranford's my favorite goalie of all time, and uh, Rob Tallis was kind of between him, and then when we had Byron Defoe, so. Rob Tallis came to like one of the goalie clinics once and he just sat with us in the locker room and talked kind of like now when you're in your thirties, you sit in the locker room after a game, you know, maybe you have a frosty beverage and you just kind of talk to the guys. And that's what it was like when, you know, 13 year old me is sitting in the locker room with Rob Tallis and he's just like, so what's up guys? You know, what do you want to talk about? And he was super down to earth and I was like, Oh, these guys are just like us. And that was, that was it. I, I, that's I remember that the most out of all youth hockey stories. That's awesome. And, and those are the kinds of things that, it, 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 like in your case, you know, you have that moment, you make that connection with a pro athlete or just, you know, it could have been anyone in, in any situation. And next thing you know, the seed for the rest of your life has been planted and hockey has been chosen. And <laughs> hockey often chooses us more so than we choose it. Yep, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you. Mark is one of the first ones that I took the ice with as well when I started learning way back in, oh, man, 2010. I think I hit the ice for the first time as a weebly-wobbly Wookiee on the ice. <laughs> it was funny. Newborn baby deer on ice. That's It's exactly what it looked like, folks. I remember very specifically Rutland Rink, and uh, one of the little kids at the free skate came over, laughed at me, skated a half circle, and then took off the other way. And yeah. I said, oh, man. I'm like 20-something years old. I just got laughed at by a little kid. <laughs> that's not cool. Oh, well, I guess I got to learn how to skate. But um, that's awesome. And that's exactly why I like to ask people stuff like that because those are the things. You're not going to see those in the history books. You're not going to hear about those. You know, after our memories are long, long, long gone, those are the ones that are just going to survive out there in the truth, and they never really go away. So yeah. thank you for sharing that, Mark. We uh, are... I think we got another minute again. Tell you what, uh, where can folks find more information about your podcast if they want to tune into that on YouTube or, or wherever else you've got it posted? Yeah, the easiest place to find it is uh, Great Gig Gear on YouTube. There is a greatgiggear.com address that takes you to uh, really just a basic page that kind of points you around. It, like I said, it's in its, it's in its infancy right now, and uh, I the love and support that we've had over the last couple of months, just in the, the few pilot episodes that we've made um, has been huge. So we're definitely going to continue with it. Um, I say we, because there's so many people that are involved in getting the gear and uh, helping me write scripts and putting things together. But it's, it's, uh, it's such a passion of mine to, to let people know about technology and how to use it and what it, what it is. So, um, <clears throat> We're definitely going to continue with it once we get uh, a couple more episodes shot and uh, and put out there. But greatgiggear.com and on YouTube, Great Gig Gear. Love it. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on The People's Truth. I'm sure we're going to have you back on the program in the future. But uh, thank you so much for being our first guest. That was just an incredible story to share with us. You got it, Ben. Thanks, man. Love you. Absolutely. Love you too, buddy. All, all good. Not afraid to say that here on the opening here on 95.9 FM WATD. We are going to step aside. And when we come back, we'll have Coach Adam Clancy talking some hockey, talking some other things in life. We'll be back here on 95.9 FM WATD. You're listening to The People's Truth.
legend, Coach Adam Clancy. Welcome, sir. How are you this evening? Doing well. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the world and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so like Ben said, you know, Adam Clancy um, originally grew up in Dorchester, but uh, pretty much lived my childhood in Weymouth. Married now for five, lived over five years. I got two little boys, a, two, a three-year-old Jack and a nine-month-old Max. So uh, I have a pretty hectic life, as you would most people would say, with kids. Well said. So we have a bunch of topics we're going to dive into tonight. We, you and I have just met recently within the last couple of weeks here, and that was through the greatest game on earth, hockey itself. So tell me a little bit about your history of with hockey and what does it really mean to you just to get things kicked off here? Uh, go on. I mean, I could go on for hours about what it means to me. Um, but, I mean, I, I started at a young age. Uh, I, my father got me on skates when I was just about three, a little bit over three years old. And uh, I hated it for probably the first dozen times I went to the rink. But for some reason, I just always wanted to go back. You know, it was something as much as I hated it, I loved it. It's, it's been a huge part of my life. You know, I, again, started skating at three, started playing organized hockey at four and a half, five, um, and then it just took off from there, really. What really hooked you in? Like, at what moment when you started out playing, uh, when did it hit you that this is for me, this is the thing that I want to do? I would say it was mainly the competitive aspect of the game as well as the, the, the team aspect and the sportsmanship. Um, I've always looked at hockey as a brotherhood. You know, it's where I have, you know, met most of the close people in my life. It was through hockey. Um, you know, I come from a very large Irish Catholic family, all from Dorchester. And, uh, we possibly could be one of the most tight knit family you could ever meet. And that's the way I felt when I, when I started playing hockey and I, I never wanted to give it up. So how far did you uh, take your hockey career, and, and it was it as far as you wanted to take it, or, or were you forced to go in certain directions based on life? So, I mean, as a young kid, every everybody's dream is to, you know, make it to the NHL. You know, that's a, a dream that anybody I know that I played with, it's always been a dream as a kid growing up. Um, you know, my me personally, I, I was able to make it, to play college hockey, but, um, you know, I was dealt some difficult cards as a young kid growing up with a lot of injuries. Um, you know, I've had doctors tell me that, you know, you can never play sports again. And I said, well, I, I don't accept that, you know, like what, what, you know, what can I do? So, I mean, and that was at a young age. I was told that at the age of 11, you know, and I, I didn't want to give up at hockey at my, that time in my life, hockey was everything to me. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of injuries as a young kid, a lot of in-depth surgeries that, you know, most kids probably would have just hung up the skates after that. But um, it's just that it was something I, I just always wanted to do. So, I mean, I played my whole life again, around four and a half, five, all the way through college. You know, I wanted to go further, but it just injuries, injuries held, <laughs> held me back. So I guess I can say, you know, I, I fulfilled my dream of playing college hockey which is that's what I really wanted to do. You said you were dealt that card at a very young age, 11 years old. What uh, what, what were the types of injuries you were looking at that young? Was it hockey-related, or was it other things going on? Or? Oh, um, none of them were hockey-related. Um, I was actually, so I actually started when I was nine years old, um, and I never knew it, but when I was nine, I was at a baseball park with my father and a friend of mine, getting ready for Little League season, I um, and 
I was playing center field. My dad was hitting me pop flies and I was throwing them in and just getting practicing. And I threw one in my entire right arm. My humerus bone just snapped. And I didn't know what happened. I could not move my arm. I was sick as a dog. I was just, it was the worst thing I've ever felt. Um, so my, you know, went to the hospital, had a few doctors take a look at it, and a lot of them just thought I may have separated my shoulder. And it was just, they, my father was like, this, it's not a separated shoulder. Okay. My, my son doesn't, he's never been like this, like something's going on. So they, um, they called an orthopedic specialist and he took a look at the x-rays and come to find out, I just had a, um, a, they called it a tumor, but just a big hole in my humerus bone. And, um, so that, you know, that was the start of several years of just torture as I called it, <laughs> um, had four surgeries. The, uh, the first three surgeries they tried to do were bone marrow injections never worked. You know, they would do it. I'd heal. They say, yep, you're good to go. I'd break it again. <laughs> you know, I broke it once after throwing a snowball at a hockey banquet. <laughs> I, th- um, fell out of the bleaches at my sister's softball game and broke it. I broke it once playing hockey. Um, and then finally, after the fourth time, my, my father said to the doctor, listen, like, you gotta do something. This is my son is going through hell and back and it's just not fair to him. So they, um, what they ended up doing was had about a 12 hour surgery where they sawed bone out of my hips, took cadaver bone, uh, restructured my entire right humerus bone, had to remove part of my bicep muscle, put in a lot of, um, fake tendons to keep the shoulder and the humerus together and uh yeah that was about again about a 12-hour surgery i was in the hospital for several nights and all i wanted to do was play hockey all i wanted to do was play sports i missed again you know i had my follow-up with the doctors and my first question was any little kid would say you know when can i play hockey again when can i play baseball again and they said you know there's that's just not a possibility for any near future. And I said, well, I don't accept that. And the doctor looked at my father and my father said, listen, I know he's only 11. I'm not going to tell my son what he can't do. If he wants to do it, he's going to want to find a way to do it. And the doctor said, really, Mr. Clancy and Adam, you know, the only thing he could really do is he'd have to learn to become a lefty. So I said, okay, fine. That's what I got to do. That's what I got to do. So I missed three years of all sports. Um, you know, with my arm itself, I, couldn't use it. The only time it was strapped to my body for six months. The only time it was ever unstrapped was when I'd have to go to physical therapy and stuff like that. But, you know, I would go out rain or shine in the backyard. And my dad at the time was coaching my sister's softball team. So I would grab, you know, the bag of softballs and then I would learn to grip the ball and I learned to throw. I would learn to write, you know, I had to learn to do everything lefty because I couldn't use my arm. And, um, I owe all of that to my father. You know, my father never pushed me to, do things and want, you know, he, he encouraged me, you know, he, he gave me that, that fire, that passion, that, you know, the, the drive of not to give up. And, you know, I, I don't think I ever would have got to where I was in life today without him. So, you know, I finally, you know, got into high school and I finally got cleared to play. And, uh, my goal at that point was just to make, whether it was freshman JV whatever. I was the only freshman out of 84 freshmen to make varsity. To me, it was, if I had to hang the skates up right then and thereafter, I would have because I proved people wrong. 
you know, and I'll never forget. I, when I made the team and got my name on the roster, I took a picture of it and emailed it to the doctor. And I said, you know, I owe this to you because you told me I couldn't do it. And here I am on the varsity roster, you know, and that was just, you know, that was the beginning of my, my hockey career really. Cause again, I missed the, the, the prime phase as a young hockey player, you know, but I just, I wasn't going to give up, you know, very respectable. And that's quite a story. And like you said, that's just the beginning of the journey. So yeah. tell, yeah. tell me, where was your favorite place to play? And and just step me through, where, where did you play your high school hockey? And uh, where did you end up after that? So I played um, four years of varsity hockey at Weymouth High School. I was a three-time All-Star and a captain senior year. After that, you know, I received a scholarship to go play prep school hockey for a year. I did what's called the post-grad year. Get, you know, some more exposure, things like that, work on academics, things like that, maturity. And then um, after that, I, you know, I had a few offers to play college hockey and schools I really wasn't interested in. So I, I came back home and, you know, being a, a homebody and a, I guess, you know, I guess you can say a mama's boy, you know, I, uh, I, I stayed home and played some junior hockey and then got recruited to go play Framingham State. Impressive. Well done, sir. My favorite part of hockey is, you know, the, where you and I coach now at the might level, you know, I played my might hockey in Dorchester, which was, you know, some of the, some of the best hockey players in the country have come out of Dorchester. You know, it's True. And like we tell our boys now, this is just have fun. And that's all I did was I just had a blast. You can worry about getting the serious part when you get a little older, you know, but just have fun. So I would say when I was a might, might squirts was probably the most fun hockey I've ever had. Well said. Couldn't agree with you more, by the way. And uh, the Premier Might Vikings, a heck of a team for anybody out there who wants to uh, see what some might hockey can look like. That, that's the way to be, let me tell you. It is. It is. I agree. <laughs> so in that regard then, so, I mean, uh, and this was all during what time frame? Uh, what year uh, did you get out of high school? What time did you finish college? So I graduated high school in 2001, and then I did the post-grad year at um, a school up in Augusta, Maine called Kent's Hill School, um, small little prep school up there. Uh, so I did that from 01 to 02, came home and um, did juniors from 02 to 03, and went on to Framingham State from 04 to 08. And um, I only, was only able to play three years at Framingham State uh, just due to injuries as, as usual. Right, right. <laughs> um, so. Um, but yet you were blessed to be able to play during a very interesting time in the evolution of hockey, especially at that level. So you really got to see the kickstart of women's hockey. Yeah, yeah. You know, I actually, a couple um, girls that I grew up with in Dorchester actually came to the same prep school I went to, and they were on the girls' hockey team there. One of them was a goalie. Um, she went on and played at UMass Boston. Another one, her sister, went on and played at Division I Providence. So it was, you know, it was kind of, I've never really seen girls hockey before until really I was at prep school. Absolutely. And, and like I said, those pivotal years there. So I am interested in on your take on that throughout your time and watching uh, the female game of hockey and seeing the differences, the differences in rules and, and just the style of play. What, what's something that jumped out most to you about the two differences between the two games? I got to tell you, man, the, the, the female hockey players, they're, they're far more feisty than the men. Well said. <laughs> they uh, they they don't give up. You know, uh, it, it's exciting to watch, though. It's exciting to see. Um, you know, obviously, growing up, everyone just noted known hockey as being a man's sport, but it's to see where it's women's hockey's come now. It's 
even at the youth level, the amount of girl teams that they have are just, if not more, as the men's and the boys. You know, it's it's a great thing for the game. I, I really think it is. Absolutely. I think women's hockey is going to be the way of the future, and uh, I would be not surprised if within our lifetime to see women in the NHL, perhaps. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I know that, you know, they got the, the NWHL league that started a few years ago, which I think is fantastic. And I know that's growing and expanding every year, which is in my eyes, I, I think is fantastic for the game. Absolutely. And obviously we hear about the difficulties and the struggles that they face on their teams with their organizations. You think about it, you know, back when they started out the NHL, it was hard to get people paid to play at all. And you were lucky if you got a pair of skates purchased for you. And I, I feel like that's kind of where women's hockey is right now. The organizations are there. Sponsorships are starting to get involved, but not quite to the level they need. And now you've got the situation where these girls have to play. Well, have to play. They play and then have to still maintain a full-time job. They aren't paid for their hockey, which is something you think about it. They went to college, they played all growing up. That is a life skill, and we pay the boys to do it. So, what do you think it's going to take to get women paid to play hockey professionally? I just think it's going to take more exposure, really. You know, um, I think it would be a great thing if you see all these NHL franchises maybe start to adopt some of these female leagues. You know, it'd be great to see, like, you know, the Bruins adopt the Boston Pride. Um, you know, the teams in Canada adopt some of the Canadian teams. I, I think that would be a fantastic thing for the game. I, I really do. Um, you know, it, you, obviously, you know, I don't think they'd be able to pay the female players, you know, the multi-million dollars that they're paying the, the pro men players right now. But, you know, you can pay them enough where they won't need a full-time job to, to, to do that as well. You know, make that their full-time job. Absolutely, or even maybe just give them the standard AHL levels because you still got plenty of players down that way making close to nine, you know, nine hundred to a, those million dollar contracts down there. And in some cases, that's a true make or break for anyone. Yeah, yeah I mean, even if you you, know, you give a, a female player one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, it's a full time salary from you know, <laughs> that's people in the regular corporate America they would love one hundred fifty thousand dollars salary a year. You know? Right, that's a pretty good spot, you know, nothing to be shabby at. And I no, know a lot of these teams, work your way up. Yeah, because a lot of these teams right now, they're paid in a place to practice, a place to play, and here's your jersey, which sounds a lot like our might level stuff. Like, what do you mean that's all you get? Yeah, exactly. I, I kind of agree more. You know, I, I just think it would be, you know, you got all these NHL expansion teams that are starting. You know, you got the Seattle team that's starting. You got the Vegas Knights that started a few years ago. You know, why not have these teams adopt? You know, put them under their cap, put them under their wing, and, and see how they do. You know, it, trial and error in my eyes. See how it goes. If it goes great, awesome. If not, okay, at least you tried. Absolutely. And I know past conversations have really, like you said, it's be about being seen. It's about ease of accessibility to getting to these games. It's, you know, if the Boston Pride plays in a random arena in the middle of random somewhere, well, it's not TD Garden. It's not a centrally located place where you're going to get that traffic. And you also need those media deals to be able to get the scores out there. It should be in the paper. It should be on radio. It should be on TV. Everywhere. Just the same as you would see guys hockey marketed that way. Yeah, I agree. 
I, I think that, you know, again, it, you're not going to bring it to the NHL level right away, but started it like an East Coast type style, you know, have a part of a franchise, you know, and see and then expand it from there. You know, and that, that can't hurt. Coach, we are coming up on the wall. Thank you so much for joining us here on The People's Truth. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. We hope to have you back on the program real soon. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I would love to. You know, this, this is great. And there he is, Coach Adam Clancy. Thank you so much for joining us on The People's Truth. We look forward to having you back next week for more great conversation and tips on how to keep the truth alive. You've been listening to The People's Truth on 95.9 FM WATD. Stay tuned for Americanorama with Mikey G coming up next. WATD FM Marshfield, WBMS Brockton. The South Shore's first choice for live team coverage of breaking news, emergency traffic, and severe weather. WATD. Streaming online at 95.9WATD.com. And with your smart speaker, just by saying play WATD.